0: This evening comes from uh, the second chapter of Hosea, reading from uh, verse 2 to verse 13. And it can be found on page 941, or thereabouts in the few Bibles, and it's also headed, Israel Punished and Restored. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will whirl her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look with them, but not find them. And then she will say, I will go back to my husband, as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my liners, sorry, my linen, intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop... All her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers, and I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the boughs. She, de- she decked herself with rings and and jewelry, and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word.
1: Thank you, Rawdon, for reading that. Now that video we watched before is part of a a six-week video. Uh, We'll watch a short clip each week and they form one whole story. It's a modern take on the story of Hosea. And so in the one we saw today we see the husband with this wayward wife but he continues to pursue her and wants to win her back. Uh, But tonight we'll be looking at this, uh, Hosea chapter 2. Let's ask God for his help and then keep your Bibles open as well. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we read this story and read this passage, a passage written to another people in another, another time but help us to see what it means for us today you are the same God then and now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you come to think about God, or when you come to a view on God, about what he's like, you know what has happened then when you think about God. You've suddenly become a theologian. You're suddenly doing theology. But the question is whether you'll be a good theologian or a bad one a good one or a dark one. As soon as you think about God, you've become a theologian. And so uh, what this means is that, in, in a sense, everyone who thinks about God is a theologian in one way or another. And one thing we do as theologians is we pick and choose, don't we? We pick and choose what God is like or what God should be like. And so, for example, when we hear when you share about God, when you hear about God and you hear that God is loving, God is patient, God is merciful, God is compassionate, what do we say? We say, yeah, that is my God, that is the God I like, that is the God I like to have. And then we, when we hear that God is also powerful and he's desperate to bless us, what do we say then? We say, yeah, that is God, the God I want, that is the God I want looking out for me. That is the God who will help me achieve my ambitions. That is the God who is going to bring me joy and happiness and blessings. But then you hear that this God is also the God who is holy. He cannot tolerate sin and evil. This is the God who is also the one who will judge the living and the dead. This is the one who will also punish with the full fury of heaven. And then what do people say? say, well, that's not my God. My God is just a loving God, not the judging God. That's not my God. We throw our arms up. What type of God is that? My God is just a loving type. But, But you see what has happened then. What has happened in this way of thinking is that we've suddenly become theologians. But let me add there, that will be a bad theologian. It's bad because we're picking and choosing what we think God is like or what we think God should be like. That is a bad theologian. You see, what do we have here? What we have here is God's own revelation of what he's like. And so today, as we think through Hosea, we're going to think through and try to make sense of this. What is God like? What does good theology tell us about God? What does a loving God do? What can a loving God do? Can a loving God judge and punish, as we saw in that passage? Well, let's turn to Hosea and turn to Hosea chapter 2. We'll work our way through this passage. And as we're doing that, let me do a quick review and a recap on what we heard last time. This was three weeks ago now. The historical context. Remember, we did this little exercise at the beginning just to get your head into the time frame, the time zone of that place. We had over here Abraham. This is a test now, a little quiz. When was he living? What year was he around? 2000 BC? Yes, so we have Abraham here, 2000 BC. The one God made promises to, big promises to. The next important guy was about here, Moses. What year was he? What was that a herd? 1000? No, a bit, not, not, not quite. 1500 BC, okay? Abraham, 2000 BC? Moses, 1500. And then we come to the greatest king of Israel, the greatest king in Israel's history, King David, powerful king. What year was he? Greg, 1000, 1000 BC. Now, he had many sons, and but the son to succeed him to inherit the throne was King Solomon. Okay, what year was he? 970, good, 970 BC. Okay, now Solomon, who was a good king, for the large part of his life, but the second half of his life, he he listened to his wife, too many of them. That was not the problem in itself, but these wives led him to worship idols. And so as a punishment from God on that kingdom, on Solomon, in around this time now, what year are we talking about now? Something dramatic happened. The kingdom was divided into two and what year was that? Nine, 922, someone got that? I'm sure someone did. 922 BC, okay? So, the generation after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two. You had the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. 200 years later, okay? 200 years later. Now, we're at, what year is that? 200 years after 922? Good, okay. 722 something terrible happens. The Assyrian Empire, the Northern Kingdom, were destroyed by the Assyrians. They came in and destroyed them, completely gone. Northern Kingdom assimilated, gone. Now, Hosea, Hosea, when did he come along? 722 is about here. 922, when the kingdom was divided, he comes close to 722. He comes in at what year? Any, anyone remember? about 750, 750 BC, okay, not too long before the destruction. And so it's during this period that Hosea comes and he tells the people, look at how you have been living. This is what you are doing okay, and God is not happy. All right, so given that, <clears throat> the story so far is Hosea was commanded by God and his life was on display to the nation. Hosea had a wife, Goma. She was an adulteress. She was unfaithful and betrayed him. But that was an illustration, a demonstration of God's life with Israel. Israel was adulterous and unfaithful and betrayed God and broke the covenant with God. Okay, so that's the illustration at the moment. So what did God do in our passage? What did he do with his people? This is a people he loves, he cherishes, he's committed to them. What did he do? Though they were turning away from him year after year for about 200 years now. But what God does in this passage is he confronts them in their adultery with these foreign gods. He confronts them in their idolatry. He confronts them in their rebellion and he confronts them in their sin. He lays before them, this is going to happen if you continue in this way. You people, you've been sinning for 200 years. This is going to happen now. God is confronting them. And if you think about this, this is what you would want and what you would expect from God, a warning before something terrible happens. It's a bit like in our household. It's a bit messy, but it happens like this sometimes. When my kids misbehave and they misbehave in a bad way, a terrible way, I want to point out their fault. I want to confront them. I want to point out, if you continue in this way, this will be the consequences. And so what do you do as a parent? You count. One, two, you better do something. You better apologise. You better say something. Otherwise, it'll be three and it's smack down, right? Smack down. You can imagine what that might look like. You see, I'm giving them a warning. And that's what God is doing here. I confront them with their fault. I don't ignore it. I don't just turn a blind eye when some child of mine hurts another child. I don't ignore it for their good. I confront it. And, of course, I don't count one and three, smackdowns right away. I take my time. One, two, something better happen. Otherwise, you'll get punished. And so, in one sense, that's what God is doing here with his beloved nation. He warns them. He pleads with them. He confronts them in their sins. So, have a look. Verses 2 to 4. We read here, rebuke your mother, rebuke her. So this is Hosea talking to the children. Um, Now this word rebuke, it can be also understood as a plea. Plead with your mother, tell her that she's going off track. And then it goes on to say, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. Now what is that about? Now this is not saying that God has severed his relationship with the nation that he is committed to. God has not declared a divorce with his people here, rather it is the people who have severed their relationship with God in their adultery, in their idolatry They have broken their covenant relationship with God. The breaking happens from their end, not God's end. So God pleads with them, don't continue in this way, this is deadly serious, there are consequences if you turn your back on me. And so God says now, in verse 2, let her remove that adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. It's like God saying to the nation, remove that smug of your face. Don't think that this is not serious. When you go worship the gods of the land, do not think that is not serious. That is deadly serious. Turn, otherwise there will be consequences. And what are those consequences verse 3 Otherwise I'll strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born I'll make her like a desert turn her into a parched land and lay and slay her with thirst These are the consequences you experience shame you want to turn your back on me you want to break your covenant promises to me there will be shame you will be shamed and you'll be deprived of all you need to live now we must remember here, as as God is saying this to the people, as Hosea was saying this, God is not confronting them here like this was a once-off slip-up. They've been failing over and over and over again for almost 200 years now. The northern kingdom, they were established in, in uh, 922 for almost 200 years now. They've been failing. And just like in the ancient world, What happened to those children of prostitutes? Well, they suffered shame and poverty and disease and they were rejected. And so that's what God says here now to the people of Israel. You will pay for the nation's prostitution to idols. And so that's what God says in verse 4. Have a look. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. You see, God is warning them. This is deadly serious. God confronts them. Don't turn your back from me. But more than confronting them, God now exposes them. God shows to them what is going wrong. And so what God does here is he shows that their behaviour is disgraceful, it's foolish and it is shameful. You see, their behaviour was incredibly disgraceful. Have a look at verse 5. Look at what the mother did here. Look at what Gomer did. Look at what Israel did. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers. Yeah, You have to keep that in mind. This is a married girl, a married woman. But yes, she says, I will go off after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. You see, the nation of Israel knew that God is God. Remember back in the days of Moses. They have experienced God's deliverance and God's care and God's providence. They knew that this is God. God created the heavens and the earth. God is the one who provides for them. But now, instead of recognising that God is the great provider, the great creator, the great one who who provided and protected them, they now pursue these false gods. Instead of Turning to God, they turn away from him and they pursue these false gods of the land. And they think that these false gods of the land are the one that provides for them. And so perhaps what happened was back then, the Israelites, they were farming and their neighbours were the Canaanites who weren't removed and destroyed yet. They saw the Canaanites, they were putting these idols in their fields, in their farms. And the Israelites were thinking, well, that looks like a good idea. Your harvest seems to be pretty good. Let's do that too. We'll put an idol in our field. And so year after year they will start trusting in that idol that that idol is the one that gives them the produce and the harvest and the fertility they experience. And so what has happened then was they started to place their trust in the visible things and ignored the God of heaven and earth. They trusted in the created things rather than the God who created those things. And so God here exposes their disgrace. Terrible what they were doing. It was disgraceful. But yet their behaviour was not just disgraceful, it was foolish. They were shamelessly running after these idols, but but yet these idols can't provide anything. They're dumb objects. Have a look, verses 6 to 7. Therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes, I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. But look at what she does. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. And so at this point, she's thinking of returning back to her husband. The nation of Israel is thinking of returning back to God. But it's not returning to God out of repentance recognising I'm I'm wrong, I need God. But really what's happening here is returning to God out of selfishness. These gods, they're not providing for me now. I remember back then, my husband, God, he did provide. And so they were utterly, completely foolish. And now verse 8, "'She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold.' which they used for Baal. You see, it's always God who provided for this nation, fed them, protected them, kept them alive, but yet in their folly they were blinded. And finally, God, what he does now is he exposed their shame as well. Look at verse 10. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. And so the nation now will be subject to public shame. Now, when we listen to this, what this nation was doing, turning their back on God, trusting in these false idols and trusting them for life. When we listen to this, people going after idols, thinking that these idols can provide and fulfil and satisfy. I wonder if there are any questions that is raised up in your minds. I wonder whether this brings to mind how it's actually quite similar today in our world, if you think about it. People chasing after idols, thinking that they will provide satisfaction and fulfilment, turning their backs on God. Does it sound similar to what happens in our city, in our country, perhaps even amongst some of us here today? You see, how many people turn to God and acknowledge that you, God, alone, are the one who provides for me? That's why we say grace during every meal, before every meal, don't we? We recognise that God is the one who provides. How many people turn to God and recognise us that he's the one who blesses, he's the one who grants us joy, he's the one who gives us this identity in Christ, he's the one who gives us self-worth, he's the one who sustains our life. I Man, you have to think about that. Every single day we stand, we breathe, we work, we study By the grace of God. That is God in his kindness sustaining our life. Today when we wake up, if we wake up, that is because of God. He sustains us. He's the one who gives us life. Now knowing that, how many people then go on, live their life, grabbing hold of money and say, I will put my trust in you. You are my great provider. Turn my back on God. I'm trusting out of money. Or how many people go and grab onto their careers and say, well, oh, this thing now is the one to give me my identity in life. This is the thing to give myself me self-worth. Or how many people turn their back on God and, and start pursuing relationships like that's what we live for, to have a boyfriend or girlfriend or to get married and say, this, when I get it, then I will be satisfied and fulfilled. You see, when we do that today, In our modern world, we're doing what Israel did, living for idols, pursuing them, trusting in them, loving them, turning our backs on God. And as we've seen in Hosea, that is adultery, adultery with idols and against God. And so what will happen in the end? When they pursued idols, when we today pursue things that are not God. Well, it will be like chasing after the wind. They will not satisfy us, not fulfil us, not complete us. Now, Timothy Keller, he puts it this way. He calls idols counterfeit gods. He says, if you fail them, that is the gods, they never forgive you. And if you get them, will never satisfy you. You see, it's a chasing after the wind. They won't forgive you if you fail and when you do get it, it will never satisfy you. And so we'll be wasting our life chasing any idol, chasing anything apart from God and what will happen is we'll die trying. You see, that was what happened several years ago. Some of you may remember this. In 2008, there was the global financial crisis. you remember that? Terrible thing. A lot of people lost a lot of super and money and all that. Well, what happened during this great economic meltdown is that many people who did live for their career, who did live for their wealth, they took their life. And so one guy, a CFO of the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, he hanged himself in his basement. He lost his will to live. He lost his money. He lost his place. Uh, A CEO of a leading US real estate auction firm, he shot himself behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. He lost his will to live. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank, he hanged himself in the wardrobe of a London hotel. You see, these guys, they were searching, they were pursuing their idols, like their their wealth, their career, like that's what's going to fulfil them and satisfy them. But when that was gone, they lost their will to live. And so what we have to see here is that pursuing idols and not acknowledging that God is the one who provides. God is the giver of life. God gives us every breath we breathe. We don't acknowledge that enough. We take that for granted. It is God who sustains our lives and so it is God alone who ultimately satisfies us, fulfils us and completes us to think that, these things can come from my job, my wealth, my relationships. That is to be fooled, and will be shamed, like what happened with Israel. And so, so far in this passage, God confronts them, God exposes them, but now God also judges them. Remember the countdown: one, two, and now it's free. It's smackdown time for the nation of Israel. The God who loves is also. The God who judges. God will now take away whatever they thought their idols provided. They thought their idols provided them with all those things, those essentials. God will now take it all away. Have a look at verse 9. Therefore, I will take away any grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness and they will be left with nothing. Exposed, standing in shame. And more than that, whatever joy they had, whatever that was worth celebrating, whatever riches they had stored up, all that will be taken away as well. And so look at this, final verses, 11 to 13. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. Nothing left to be happy about, to celebrate it goes on, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her, her pay from her lovers. I'll make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I'll punish her for the day she burnt incense to the bowls. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. And so God finally judges, punishes, and the punishment The nation God was what they pursued. They pursued idols and so they are left with lies and emptiness and shame and disgrace. But yet when we look at this and when we read this, we should also sense the heartache of God. We should sense that God is hurt by this. Even in his judgment, she went after her lovers, but me she forgot. Now remember last time when we looked at Hosea Hosea chapter 1. We're meant to feel the heart of God. God is hurt when humans sin. God is hurt when we trust in things rather than him. God is hurt by adultery, by idolatry, by unfaithfulness, by betrayal. And God's judgement here was really to let them have what they wanted. God withdrew his blessings. And so God said, you want to pursue these idols? Well, you go on and see what you're left with. See what you're left with. And all you'll be left with is empty, lifeless and fake idols. You're getting what you've asked for. And so in this passage, this is the God who confronts. This is the God who exposes. This is also the God who judges. And so what happened in the end to this nation, the northern kingdom, Well, what happened? 722, remember that date. The nation was in the end destroyed by the Assyrians. The northern kingdom ceased to exist. They faced their end. They faced judgement. They turned their backs on God and so they got that. They did not get God. They were exposed in their disgrace, their folly and their shame. Their idols were nowhere to be seen. Those they worshipped, those they uh, cling on to unable to protect them, unable to save them, unable to preserve them. But now we might ask, and some of us might ask, how can a loving God do such a thing? It's a big question. We know God to be loving, but how can he leave them off, let them uh, off uh, hanging and dying in such a way? How can God judge them and punish them like that? And that's when that theologian inside us comes out. And will be shown for whether we're a good theologian or a bad theologian, a good one or a bad one. Do we now say, well, surely a loving God will not judge and punish in such a way, even though that's what we see here. Or do we now say, perhaps, perhaps this is what a loving God must do. This is the type of God God is. We see that is precisely the point we should see here that this is what a loving God must do. God confronted them in their sin because God loves them too much to remain silent. God exposed their disgrace, their folly and shame because God loves them too much to leave them in the dark. And God judged them and punished them because he loves them too much, loves the world too much to leave us believing that idolatry is okay, that adultery is okay. And so this is, in a sense, God's tough love. You see, when people ask, how can a loving God judge and punish? What right does a God, any God, have to judge me for who I am? Do you know what we need to ask in response? We actually need to ask this. We need to ask, well, where do you get that idea of a loving God? Where do you get that from? Where do you get the idea that God must love you? In fact, that God must serve you, that God is personal. Where do you get that idea from? Well, you know where that idea comes from? The notion, the idea of a loving God, in fact, a sacrificial God, a personal God, that only comes from the Bible. You see, in the Eastern religions, in all the other religions in the world, God is not disposed to love his people. But this God is. In the Eastern religions, the gods aren't loving at all. In fact, they're they're quite capricious. If you don't offer your sacrifices, then that God is out to get you. And so there is this fear in the Eastern religions. And that's why in these religions there's always the the importance of offering sacrifices, uh, and, uh, food and fruits and whatever else to these gods. I remember growing up in a household where before my mother became a Christian, she was uh, Buddhist for quite a while and Growing up, every year she would set up a table as an altar. She'll put a nice roast duck she just got and fresh fruit and buns and all that. And it was really done out of fear, just in case. Just in case the gods would get her for not doing something like that. Now, back then I was quite young. I didn't really care too much with what was happening as long as I got to eat that duck afterwards. But you see, in the Eastern religions, the gods don't love. They are to be feared. They're out to get you if you don't sacrifice to them. And even in Islam, Allah might be described as loving, but he's not there to serve you. He's there to be served. He's far, he's distant, he's transcendent. Where do we get the idea that God is loving, that God is love, that God is sacrificial, that God is personal? Where do we get that idea? We only get it from the Bible. And say so if you want a loving God, You can't pick and choose only that bit and reject the rest. And so we can't take the bits of God we like and reject the bits we don't. That is to be a bad theologian. The God of the Bible is loving but he is also the God who judges and will punish. Now one author, he puts it this way, describing the book of Hosea, wrath and love or the wrath of love are expressed clearly in God's willingness to woo his wicked wife Israel and yet punish the nation's wickedness. He loves and judges them simultaneously. And we have to understand that is profound. It's not either or, it's both and. God is both loving and he judges and he punishes. So what then does this mean for us today? That was the nation of Israel, they were judged, they were punished. But what about us? Let's reflect on us. You see, what this passage has to teach us, has to make clear to us and does make clear to us and that is adultery. Idolatry is no less serious today. It is no less hurtful towards God, no less disgraceful, no less shameful and no less foolish. And so as we live our life, tomorrow we return to study our work. If we continue to cling on these things in this world, we are being shameful, we are being disgraceful and we are hurting the heart of God. And so what will happen? Well, you see, sin is serious enough that judgment must still fall. Judgment for human sin must still fall. But in fact, this time round, it's not just the destruction of a nation. It's in fact far more serious than that. Far more serious. In our first reading, 2 Peter 3. The heavens and earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgement and destruction of ungodly men. The judgement of God now that we face far more serious than just the destruction of a nation. It is eternal. It is to face fire and torment for eternity. The judgement of God is far more terrifying but yet, The love of God is great enough that he's in fact done something about it. His love is great that he's done something about it. In 2 Corinthians is what we read, For our sake, us today, he made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sword of God's judgement must fall. Must fall, and it fell on His own Son Jesus Christ for us. How can a loving God be at the same time judge and punish? Well, that's how. At the cross of Christ, we see that perfectly clear. The loving God, but yet He punishes and He judges sin in His Son. And so today, you've heard the good news. This is the good news. And you've heard God pleading. Turn back. Don't chase and follow those foolish idols that will leave you empty and dissatisfied. Don't do as Israel did. She went after her lovers, but me she forgot. Let us never forget the God who loved us that much, that much he sent his son for us. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we read and hear of the lesson to Israel, help us to not repeat what they did. Help us to never forget your love for us seen at the cross of Christ and your justice and punishment poured out on your Son on our behalf. Help us to not forget your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.